0: This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. It's True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. I hope this post finds you all safe and sane. It has been just about a month now since Michigan has officially been canceled, and life as we know it, right along with it. Uh, But time marches on, uh, and here's something. This Friday, I will turn 40. The big 4-0. I cannot believe I'm saying that out loud. (laughs) Um, There was supposed to be a big surprise party. Surprise! And I was supposed to get all of the presents, like the giant spoiled brat that I am. Alas, that is not to be. And and that whole thing honestly just feels so unimportant now in the grand scheme of things. All I really want is my health, uh, the health of my loved ones, the health of all of you, and for this unimaginable nightmare to be over. But 40 years, that is a milestone. And to spend it quarantined in the midst of a global pandemic... Uh, You know, I am certainly not going to forget this birthday, but today I want to talk to you guys about someone else's birthday. On April 28th, Glenn Richard Houston Jr., Lenny, as his family calls him, will turn 50 years old, and his family would love nothing more than to celebrate his special day with him, albeit from a safe distance, but they can't because Lenny has been missing since 2001. Before we get into this one, I want to tell you how I first heard about the disappearance of Lenny Houston. My buddy, Kate Saxton, who lives very near where Lenny went missing, brought this story to my attention as kind of like a, hey, here's the true crime story from my hometown, you should look into it. Which, I get those a lot, but then Kate looked into it. Uh, She started asking people around town about Lenny, she got in touch with his family, she did a ton of research, and she actually arranged a meeting for me with Lenny's sisters, which that is something that I have not done before, met with a family before doing the research and doing a story for a case, and it was intense, it was sad, but it brought such a realness to this story. Meeting with Lenny's sisters was actually the last social thing that I did before the world shut down. Kate and I met them at the Middleton Diner on a Sunday. They shared stories and pictures, and then Lenny's sister Rose took us to some of the important locations in the case, including a place called Rainbow Lake, which is its whole own story that we'll talk about later. In a different world, Kate would be here telling this story with me, because it's really her her it's hers uh but congregating is illegal at the moment so today kate is my silent co-host i promise you guys she's super fucking funny and she's pretty easy on the eyes uh not that that matters in podcasting or in life but she is just saying uh so everybody say hi to kate hi kate all right let's get to it fulton township which is not to be confused with the city of Fulton. Apparently, we needed two Fultons in Michigan for some reason. Uh, Fulton Township is located about 40 miles due north of Lansing. With a population of just under 2,500, Fulton Township is made up of three unincorporated villages, Parenton, Pompeii, and Middleton. So 2,500 people, that is a small town as it is, and then divide that into thirds. That's how small of a community we're talking when we talk about Middleton. Everyone truly knows everyone, and everyone knew Lenny Houston. Lenny was born on April 28, 1970, the second youngest in a large, blended family. He grew up in Ithaca, another small town in a sea of small towns just about 15 minutes north of Middleton, Uh, In fact, if you're looking at your hand as a map of Lower Michigan, Ithaca is smack dab in the middle of it. Every article I could find about Lenny was sure to mention that he was mentally disabled or mentally impaired. But he didn't let his disability hold him back. Lenny was a kind, gentle soul who would help anyone and who loved to play pranks on his sisters. He liked everyone and he trusted everyone. He graduated from Fulton High School in the late 1980s, and he stayed in Middleton to be close to his family. He loved the Dukes of Hazzard, and he recorded every episode on his VCR. He liked country music, and he always had a Pepsi in one hand and a cigarette in the other. He loved his cats, he had three of them, and he was close with his family, especially his mom. Lenny was easily recognizable around town. He rode everywhere on a blue bicycle with a wire basket. By the time he was 30, Lenny had his own apartment in the heart of Middleton and a job at Fulton's Country Corners, a gas station and convenience store just minutes from his apartment. For most, these would seem like positive steps toward independence. But for Lenny, this spelled trouble. Because both the store he worked at and the apartment house he lived in were owned by the same man— a man named Roger Brown, and Roger Brown was bad news. According to Lenny's sisters, Roger pretty much owned Middleton, which again, Middleton's about two seconds big. Roger owned Country Corners, the store where Lenny worked, he owned the adjacent car wash, and he owned several rental properties around town. He had a reputation for shady dealings and was said to be a master manipulator. And unfortunately, Lenny's naivety and willingness to help others were no match for Roger Brown. He was under Roger's thumb, day and night. He did everything Roger asked of him. Which is how he wound up in Roger's company on October 29, 2000, when Roger went to shake down one of his tenants that was behind on rent. The tenant wasn't home, so Roger, with Lenny by his side, illegally entered the residence and took some of the tenant's personal property as collateral which, obviously, that's illegal. Uh, It's, you know, theft. But Roger didn't just take any old property. He took a rifle and a hunting bow, which makes it super illegal. The tenant reported the theft, so the police started asking questions. Roger Brown was a brick wall, but Lenny Houston was a hot mess, and so authorities quickly zeroed in on him. At first, he tried to avoid the police like Roger instructed him to do, Roger told him if they just ignored the problem, it would go away, which is something we'll circle back to later. But Middleton is small, and there weren't many places for Lenny to hide, so the police eventually caught up with him. After talking to Lenny, the police decided they had enough to arrest Roger Brown, not just for the theft of the firearm, but also for another incident Lenny witnessed, which took place on January 26, 2001. According to the Gratiot County Sheriff's Office, Roger assaulted a 10-year-old boy in Lenny's apartment. Because of his childlike nature, the neighborhood kids all liked Lenny and often hung out with him around his apartment. On the afternoon of January 26th, a group of neighborhood kids, including the 10-year-old boy in question, were visiting Lenny when Roger Brown showed up. Now, this was less than a week before Roger would be hit with a weapons charge for the theft from his tenant's apartment. So the police were poking around, tensions were high... And according to multiple witnesses, upon entering Lenny's apartment, Roger grabbed this 10-year-old boy by the collar, shoved him against a wall, and began screaming at him, accusing him of playing in the apartment's attic. Which, I've seen this apartment. It is not a well-maintained building by any means. So I find it hard to believe that Roger was concerned about damage to the building because it really doesn't look like a building that he gives a whole lot of a shit about. My unsolicited opinion is that there had to be something up in that attic that Roger Brown was worried about someone finding. So as he was demanding a confession from this 10-year-old kid that he had cornered against a wall, he slapped him. He fucking slapped someone else's baby across the face. Now, I walk a pretty fine line on the show when talking about unsolved cases because you have to be careful what you say about suspects who haven't actually been charged with the crime. But this motherfucker? Hitting a child, not even his own child, which not that that would be okay, but a grown man hitting a 10-year-old child that he doesn't even know in the face? You are an asshole, Roger Brown. You're a piece of shit, and you deserve whatever people say about you as we proceed. And by people, I mean me. So this traumatized kid runs home. He's crying. He tells his mother what happened. And of course, she calls the police. I mean, I personally, if I'm this kid's mom, I probably would have blown up his car or something. But calling the police was a more rational response. It's it's the right thing to do. When police arrived at Roger Brown's house to question him, he was combative and even at one point tried to slam the door in their faces. So this is a guy that's truly too big for his riches. Uh, he thinks he's above the law, above the police. He can go where he wants, take what he wants, touch who he wants, assault who he wants. And when the police try to question him about it, he's he's even above the police and above being questioned and having to answer for his actions. So again, an asshole. On February 1st, 2001, a warrant was issued for Roger Brown's arrest on weapons and assault charges. The assault charge was a misdemeanor but the theft of a firearm charge was a felony. He was facing thousands of dollars in fines and up to five years in prison if convicted. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for February 14, 2001, Valentine's Day, of course, the worst day of the year anyway, and Lenny Houston was about to be subpoenaed to testify as a witness, as the only witness on the weapons charge, and he was hella stressed about it. Roger was putting pressure on him to disappear before the hearing so that he couldn't testify. Lenny made plans to move out of his apartment to put some distance between himself and Roger, who, again, was both his landlord and his boss, in addition to being a total piece of shit. During one odd conversation over a family dinner, Lenny informed his parents that, when he died, he wanted to be buried at a specific cemetery, North Star Cemetery, uh, his sisters remember this as being a very out-of-place comment, especially considering the fact that Lenny was only 30 years old, so why would he be dying anytime soon? But it just spoke to how nervous he was about everything going on with Roger Brown and the court case. On February 5, 2001, Lenny worked the second shift at Country Corners. A co-worker drove him home and dropped him off around 10.30 p.m., The next morning, Lenny's mom arrived at his apartment for their morning tea, which had become a daily ritual. She found the apartment door unlocked and a stack of clean, freshly folded laundry on the end of Lenny's bed. But Lenny wasn't there, and neither was his blue bicycle. The bike was reportedly parked outside country corners when a family member drove by on the morning of February 6th because Lenny had gotten that ride home the night before, so he rode his bike to work, He left the bike there and had someone give him a ride, maybe because it was late, it was too cold. It was still winter in Michigan, so maybe it had snowed or was icy. But that morning, his bike was still there. Lenny did not show up for his shift at work that day. But oddly, his bike went missing from the store. So it was there when he left the night before. It was there the next morning. He never came back, but his bike disappeared. His family mobilized about town, searching all of his familiar haunts, but Lenny had disappeared, just like Roger Brown had told him to. Lenny's family reported him missing on February 11, 2001. They were hopeful that police would bring Lenny home safely, but were not optimistic. Lenny loved his family. He would never leave without telling someone, or leave at all, to hear his sisters tell it. He was very much a homebody and always went to his family when he was in trouble. If for some reason he had left town, even if it wasn't by choice, he would have found a way to contact them. It had been almost a week, and nothing. There had been no activity on his bank account since the day he went missing, and his government aid and income tax refund checks went uncashed, as well as his last paycheck. The Gratiot County Sheriff's Office and the Michigan State Police conducted searches by foot, patrol car, quad, helicopter, horse, Nothing. Lenny had simply vanished into thin air. That fact alone was troublesome to Lenny's family because they say he would not have been capable of pulling off a vanishing act on his own. They plastered flyers in shop windows and on telephone poles all over town. Two billboards went up with Lenny's face on them and a $2,000 reward was offered for information on his whereabouts. Still nothing. Meanwhile, Roger Brown warned his employees at Country Corners that they were not to so much as speak Lenny's name and told investigators that Lenny had taken off of his own free will. He pushed the story that Lenny wanted to reunite with his father, Glenn Houston Sr., who'd been absent for most of his life. Roger Brown knew Glenn Sr. as they'd worked together at the Oldsmobile plant in Lansing as young men and he told investigators that due to this, Lenny had opened up to him about wanting to move down south to get to know his dad. But that lead, of course, didn't pan out. It was theorized that Roger had possibly sent Lenny to Kentucky to stay with his son so that authorities could not serve him with the subpoena, but that didn't pan out either. And there were darker theories still. There were rumors that shortly after Lenny's disappearance, Roger had a new cement foundation laid for a garage that he suddenly decided to build, but that when the construction company returned to check on how the foundation had settled, Roger refused to let them inspect it. There was talk of a brush pile on Roger's property that was festering with black flies and a horrible odor of decay, but before police could secure a search warrant for the property, the pile was burned. Two weeks after his disappearance, on February twentieth, two 2001, Lenny's blue bicycle with the wire basket was found near a trucking warehouse in Ithaca. But there was no sign of Lenny. This just raised more questions. How did Lenny's bike get from Country Corners to Ithaca, 20 miles away, after Lenny disappeared? On March sixteenth, two 2001, the felony firearm charges against Roger Brown were dropped because the entire case hinged on Lenny's testimony. So, Lenny's well-timed absence saved Roger thousands of dollars and years of prison time. In the assault case, Roger pled guilty to jostling and paid a fine of $360. So, when Lenny Houston disappeared, so did all of Roger Brown's problems. In the small village of Middleton, where everyone knows everyone and everything, the disappearance of Lenny Houston was all at once the only thing anyone could talk about and the one thing everyone was afraid to talk about. It's been alleged that Roger would threaten people who brought up Lenny's name and that he used intimidation tactics on Lenny's family, even going so far as to vandalize their property and taunt them. Roger considered himself the big man about town, Again, Middleton is not even a town. It's basically a neighborhood, but okay, bro, you do you. Uh, and as the big fish in the small pond, he had lackeys, cronies, a crew, whatever you want to call them. Uh, a group of friends, employees that did his bidding for him. And you know what they say, right? Loose lips sink ships? Is that—is that it? Is that what it is? Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's right. Anyway, the more time passed, the more comfortable Roger Brown became about running his mouth, saying things like, oh, they'll never find him. He's never coming back. And his crew followed suit. The idea that Roger killed Lenny, or had Lenny killed, to get out of a possible five-year prison term became Middleton's worst-kept secret. And if that's true, God, what? Like, is that what a human life is worth? Five years? What your fucking soul is worth? Up to five years? Well, scratch that, because I'm pretty sure Roger Brown sold his soul a long time ago. As proof, here is a statement that he made to the Carson City Gazette regarding Lenny, who he referred to as, "'Easy to replace.'" "'I'd like to make this thing die. We're getting tired of the whole thing. I'm not going to sit down and worry about one person because he's not around.'" The guy was mentally retarded, and I think as far as he was concerned, and I'm concerned, it's done with. Fuck you. That's all I have to say about that. As weeks turned to months, and months turned to years, talk of Lenny turned to whispers in Middleton. And then those whispers stopped altogether. The billboards were covered over. The posters were taken down, probably by Roger fucking Brown the reward money was allocated elsewhere, the news outlets stopped calling, but Lenny's family never gave up. For years, his sister Rose called the Michigan State Police Post in Ithaca monthly, asking for updates on the case. Vigils were held on the anniversary of Lenny's death almost every year. In 2007, Lenny was featured on America's Most Wanted. Still, nothing. Lenny's family has not had contact with the media or the authorities since around the 10th anniversary of his disappearance, which was in 2011. In a feature that ran on the 10-year anniversary, the last time I could find that Lenny was in the news, Michigan State Police Detective Steve Benn told The Morning Sun that Lenny's disappearance still keeps him up at night. It's the most frustrating thing I've ever been involved with, he said. Somebody's going to come loose with some information. Somebody knows something. That was in 2011. Lenny's mother Barbara passed away in 2015. His stepfather Jules passed away in 2016. They died without knowing what happened to their son. But they knew. They purchased a plot adjacent to theirs for Lenny so that when he's found, he can be buried beside them. And that's all his family wants at this point. Meeting with Lenny's sisters gave me an opportunity to do something that I haven't done before— I got to ask them what they wanted the outcome, the impact of this episode to be, which that was both a very powerful moment and a very unnerving one because the pressure to do a story justice once you've looked the family of a victim in the eyes and promised to try to help is a lot. Lenny's sisters are under no illusions about what happened to him. Of course, there's always going to be that little glimmer of hope that comes with not knowing, but realistically, They believe Lenny was killed very soon after he went missing, and that he was likely already dead by the time they realized he was gone. They believe Roger Brown is responsible. It's not so much a question of what happened to Lenny at this point, as where is Lenny. They just want to know where he is. They want justice. They want closure. They want to be able to honor their parents' last wish, to find Lenny and give him a proper burial. In the words of Lenny's sister Ruth, we miss the world out of him. We're coming up on 20 years since Lenny went missing, and Detective Ben was absolutely right. Somebody knows something. I've been to this town. I've seen Lenny's apartment where he disappeared from, the convenience store that he worked at, his empty burial plot. I've even seen the garage that he's supposedly buried beneath. It is all within, like, a five-mile radius maybe less. There are people who know what happened. Secrets weigh on you. Time wears you down. And with everything that's going on in the world right now, there has never been a better time to be a hero. So if you know something, say something. Lenny Houston was last seen alive on February 5, 2001 in Middleton, Michigan. At the time of his disappearance, he was five foot five. 120 pounds, with dark hair, brown eyes, oversized gold-framed glasses, a thin mustache, and possibly a goatee. He had a scar on the top of his head, a large birthmark on his neck, and a gap between his upper front teeth. He was wearing a blue or green jacket, sneakers, a silver mood ring, a silver Avon ring with an embedded diamond, and a silver watch. If you know anything at all about the disappearance of Lenny Houston, please contact the Michigan State Police Ithaca Post at 989-875-4111. and I'll have more photos of Lenny as well as information about who to contact. If you have any tips on the SoDead website, now a little weird fact about Roger Fucking Brown—he's still alive, like all villains. Uh, He still lives just minutes from where Lenny disappeared. He lives in what is essentially, but not exclusively, a retirement community called Rainbow Lakes. There is indeed a lake there, uh, although I did not see any rainbows. And while I was going on a little tirade about how unfair it is that you can kill someone and still wind up living in a cabin on Rainbow Lake, My silent co-host, Kate, informed me that Roger fucking Brown is not the only maybe murderer living on Rainbow Lake. Because Artis fucking White, who remains the only suspect in the murder of his wife, Bernita White, who coincidentally was killed just a few months after Lenny disappeared, lives on Rainbow Lake as well. Uh, My friend Ashley talked about Bernita's murder way back in episode 9, so... Moral of the story is, if you maybe probably got away with murder, Rainbow Lakes is the retirement community for you. My sources for this episode were uh, thecharlieproject.org, an article in The Morning Sun by Linda Gittleman written on February 6, 2011, a couple of articles from the Carson City Gazette, written by Elizabeth Walden, one from February 13, 2006, one from February 8, 2010. And then there were a couple of article clippings that the family had that they gave me, but they were literally clipped out of a newspaper. So I don't know what newspaper they were from. There was no date. There was no author information available. But I did draw a few facts from a couple of those. And that is it. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. It's once again time for me to answer a listener question, and I thought this one was appropriate for today. Kim Wilson Walker asked, Are you more drawn to the unsolved crimes, or is it more satisfying to research the solved crimes with answers? I think that from a storytelling standpoint, and from a human standpoint, uh, definitely the stories where there's an answer are more satisfying because this awful thing happened, but someone there's someone you can punish for it. There, There's justice, there's karma, there's the right in the world that this person has been caught and punished. But as a podcaster, as someone sharing these stories with a, a large group of people, the unsolved ones, I think, are more important because there's still something to do there. There's still, you never know who's going to listen or who's going to share it with who or who might know something or what tips this might generate. And the whole goal of this episode and any episode that focuses on a missing person's case or an unsolved murder is to solve it, you know, to help generate buzz about a case that people have forgotten about or stopped talking about and who knows what will come out of that. But again... You know, then you've got fuckers like Roger Brown living on Rainbow Lakes getting away with murder. So that's that's the downside to that. (sighs) Anyway, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash so dead Podcast. And be sure to visit sodeadpodcast.com for all of your So dead merch. As always, you guys can email me with your feedback and story ideas to sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. One last thing. Keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.